All right, all right, all right. We are so glad. That sounded kind of like Matthew McConaughey, didn't it? That was by accident. All right, all right, all right. We are so glad that you are with us today as we continue in this series where we're we're really studying what we call theology. Theology, we learned last week, is is the study of God. And, uh, And afterwards, last Sunday, in the teaching on the Trinity, We stuck around afterwards for about 30 minutes and took your questions, and we're going to do a little bit of that today as well at the end of the service, and uh, we had kind of a post-service party, and we took your questions and your comments, and and so if you missed that last week, I really want to encourage you to go back and check that out, uh, because we had a lot of... Uh, a lot of great insights and questions that we received from you as we wrestle with getting to know God better and who he is. And so uh, right now, what I want to do is just really quickly at the beginning, touch on what we covered last week, not all of it, but just a quick review in that first of all, we talked about how there is one God. There is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is in the Hebrew Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. And somehow that slide uh, lost the rest of its content. Yeah, let's do it this way. That way you can see it. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, that is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And echad is the Hebrew word here for one. Echad is a word that shows up all throughout the Old Testament. And what's interesting about the word echad is it can mean just unit, but it doesn't exclusively mean that. It's not like the Hebrew word yahid for one. Echad can mean one unit, but it can also mean one in unity. Let me show you an example. In the creation story, when God created the heavens and the earth, and then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God creates man and and institutes the covenant of marriage. And he says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they, the two, become one. It's echad, that same word for the oneness of God. That when we enter into the unity of marriage, that in the eyes of God, while there are still two persons, there is one flesh that is not to be divided. That's why adultery and and divorce and Sex outside of marriage is such a big deal in the Bible. People are like, why is God so obsessed with all this stuff? Well, it's because it it shows us a representation of the unity of God. It's the same word as the Trinity, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet, God exists as three distinct persons. Again, when God created the heavens and the earth, When God created mankind, he said, then God said, let us, us, make man in our image, in our likeness. So even in creation, we see the the multiple persons of the Godhead. Check out John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and then verse 14. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? The Word, the Greek word here in the New Testament, is logos. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. What does that mean? He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the word, this word, whatever it was that was with God and was God, this word, it's referring to Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. And so this, this unity of, of community that we call the Trinity, we see throughout Scripture that God the Father is one, that, that Jesus is also fully God, that the Holy Spirit is God. And we wonder, how can this, this be, this three in one? It doesn't make sense to us. And so uh, we looked last week at a few different examples, one of which I kind of Liked. I want to remind you, Frank Beckwith says that a plant is a being with no center of consciousness. A human is a being with one center of consciousness. And God is a being with three centers of consciousness. I mean, if you look at a plant, a bush in your backyard or, or a house plant sitting in your living room, they don't sit around as a plant and say, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. Your plant does not say, well, I need to go see a therapist. Doc, help me figure out who I am. Because a plant is a being with no center of consciousness. A human is a being with one center of consciousness. And God is a being with three centers of consciousness. And so, maybe at this point, you're kind of like some of us were last week, where your mind is kind of going, like, this is so hard for us to wrap our minds around. And in fact, in our, in our after-service conversation that we had in the Q&A session, and, and even throughout the week, some of the conversations that I've had, I know that wrestling with try to, trying to understand the nature of God can even be frustrating, maybe even discouraging. But I want to point out to you what, what Evelyn Underhill says. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. I mean, what kind of arrogance would it take for me to believe that somehow my little pea brain as a finite human being could ever truly understand the glory and the majesty and the wonder of an all-surpassing and infinite God? And so uh, here's where we ended last week. We said the more you learn about the Trinity, the more you discover three things that are absolutely essential. First of all, that the Trinity teaches us something essential about God. There are things that we will never understand about the nature of God until we begin to wrestle with the Trinity. There are things that we will never understand about our world 
There are things that are essential about how we are to do life as human beings that we'll never understand apart from the Trinity. And it teaches us something essential about Christianity. There are things about our faith as followers of Jesus that we'll never understand apart from the Trinity. And so, I I think if we could move our understanding forward just a little bit here, Maybe it could help us in some of these areas of our walk with Jesus and have an impact on our lives. And so here, here are three things. First of all, let's, let's answer this question. What does the Trinity tell us about God? Psalm 86 verse 8 says, Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. In other words, among all the gods of this world, Among all of this world's expressions of spirituality, there is no one like our God. And so if God really is this eternal community of three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the the, the Trinity so in tune with one another, so close together that they are of the same essence and yet radically different, yet completely equal, doing life in harmony together forever? What does that tell us? Well, what it tells me is we've got a lot of work to do in our relationships, right? I mean, compare that to our relationships. Compare that to how our families function. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can hardly go a week without getting upset at somebody. And so the Trinity shows us what it's like to live in perfect harmony. I think there are four things this tells us about God. Number one, it tells us that God really is perfect. God really is perfect. He he would have to be. If all of this stuff about the Trinity is true, God would have to be perfect because otherwise the Trinity would have destroyed itself eons ago just as humans are destroying each other right now. Just as you you look at our world and you see how humans are, are constantly treating each other Poorly, And God gives us the perfect picture, though, of how life and love and relationships are, are designed to be. Because, number two, God really is in community. God really is in community. That, that God has always been a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because, number three, God really is love. In John 17, 24, Jesus prayed, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Uh, Look at at 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God. In other words, not that we earned it somehow. 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And folks, this is, this is what makes the God of the Bible so different from other expressions of, of spirituality. Unlike the God of, of Islam, Allah, who is said to have created to demonstrate his power and authority. Instead, the Bible paints for us the picture of a God of love who created this world not as an exercise of his power or to prove his authority. He created us because that is what love does. Love creates. Love reproduces itself. Love gives. Love shares with others. And that's why we see, number four, that God really is sacrificial. Now, I, I want to stop here for just a minute because this is perhaps one of the most important points for some of us here today. When you look through the Bible, you find that each member of the Trinity is constantly giving attention and shining the spotlight on the others. For example, look at the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit is what? Always glorifying the Son, pointing attention to Jesus. What does the Father do? John 8, 54, Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. But my Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. The Father glorifies the Son. John 17, verse 1, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may do what? That your Son may glorify you. Jesus says, any of the glory that I receive, even what the Father gives me, Jesus says, I give it right back to the Father. And so what you find in the Trinity is this community of humility, with each member of the Trinity shining the spotlight and giving glory to the others. Isn't that beautiful? And so what does that teach us? Well, that's the second question. What does the Trinity teach us about real life here in the world? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, if we were created in the image of God, does it not make then some amount of sense that the way to truly do life the way that it was intended, in order to live in his image, we need to be like him. And we've already seen today that God lives in a community of humility and self-sacrificing love. And so I think here's what that means. Because we were created in God's image, if you want to be miserable, 
All you have to do is put walls up around yourself. You want to be miserable? All you have to do is is to, to just become distrustful and disrespectful and start picking other people apart and start being a complainer and you will be miserable. Because you and I, we were created in the image of God. And that's why the people who are the most fulfilled are the people who speak words of of blessing and love over other people. People who who glorify God and worship God and, and shine the spotlight on others are the ones who are most fulfilled because that is how we live in his image and likeness. Because remember how the the Spirit is always calling attention to the Son. And and the Son is always shining the spotlight on the Father. And the Father is always giving glory to the Son. And so shining the spotlight on others and glorifying God with our lives is the way to truly find fulfillment in living in His image. And then here's the final question. The final question is this. What does the Trinity teach us about Christianity? On the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed a prayer for his disciples, for you and for me and for everyone who will become a follower of Jesus. And listen to what he prays for us that we would receive, how how we would live. John 17, verse 20 and 21. Jesus said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also Be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, Jesus never envisioned his followers just trying to to live their spiritual lives, trying to, to follow Jesus just out on their own somewhere in isolation. Whether you like it or not, What Jesus wants for you when you become a follower of Christ is to live in the unity of community called the church. And I think that's one of the things that that breaks God's heart is when, when churches are divided, when Christians are divided. Look at that last sentence that Jesus prayed. That we would be one, why? So that, everybody say so that, so that. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, here's what Jesus prayed. This is so important. Don't miss this. That unless the church is one, unless Christians stop just beating up on each other, the world will never truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is. John Chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 
Jesus says that, that our love for others and our love for spiritual community will be part of the litmus test that will prove whether or not we truly are disciples of Jesus. And can I just stop and say something here for a minute? Sometimes when I see some of the things that, that Christians put on Facebook and, and on Twitter and on whatever social platform or, or, or will say about each other, I wonder sometimes if it calls into question where our priorities lie and whether we truly are disciples of Jesus. And so for me, I take that so seriously that I, I try to, to look at everything through that filter. I mean, whatever it is that I, that I write online, whatever I say about people, whatever memes or, or comments we share on whatever platform, whatever articles you share with other people, what I'm always trying to evaluate, and I don't, know, I don't always get this right. Sometimes I get it wrong. Sometimes I make mistakes and I have to apologize. But but as best I can, I'm always trying to evaluate through this filter. When people see what I've written or see what I've said, do they look at that and say, that guy, Joel, represents the love of Jesus? Or do they look at what we put out there and say, well, He sounds a whole lot more like the world than like Jesus. And listen, I, I know that Jesus got upset sometimes and he said strong things. But what's the motivation? Is the motivation to prove that I'm right? Or is it out of a heart of humility and love? And it breaks my heart when I see sometimes people who will say, well, you know, I can be a Christian, but I don't, I don't need the church. I don't need to be part of a small group. And it breaks my heart because I know that they're wrong. <laughs> Jesus says so in his word that we were called to be one, to love one another, to be in spiritual community as a reflection of the Trinity. And frankly, I think that's one of the things that's so hard about all of these lockdowns and separating people and, and not being able to have gatherings because we know deep down in our heart, we were designed for community. Can I, can I just say, it, 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 it's something that I'm constantly grateful for is I am so glad that all this stuff that's happening right now in the world today did not happen 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, because now we don't have any excuse. Now through technology, through, through different social media platforms and through teleconferencing platforms like Zoom and Facebook circles and Google Hangouts and whatever it is you like to use, that, that we can come together face to face and study God's word together and pray together, even if we are separated by distance. I am so grateful for how God God is using technology to help us build the church in ways that we never would have thought possible. Can you put an amen in the comments today? Aren't you glad for what God is doing in his church? Okay, now to finish up, I want to show you an illustration that, 
uh, is going to kind of make me nervous, okay? We'll see if this works out, okay? But we've got three of our wonderful worship team leaders here who are going to help us with an, an illustration. And I wish that everybody was here filling up this big, big room so that we could do this with all of you singing, but maybe you could even sing at home as a family. And, and the first thing that we're going to look at is how three different songs sound when they're kind of in a different key. And so, Tatiana, why don't you start out for us just kind of singing a little bit of Silent Night. Here we go. Silent Night. Okay, here we go. Away in a That's about all we can handle. Waiting. That's really hard to do, isn't it? To try to sing in different keys. But that, that so much reminds me of what we see in the world, which is, you know, every time you go to a hockey game or, or, or a football game or, or a public event or you go to the mall or, or even in church beforehand when people are just kind of walking around and talking and there, there's lots of noise, lots of voices, but everybody's singing their own song, Right? in their own key, many voices, but little unity. But the picture that we see in the Trinity, and this is one of the reasons that I think music is so powerful, is because it, it, it shows us examples of what it's like to be distinct with different voices, but one song. And so let's just kind of try a chord this time and put all of that together in harmony. And there's the difference. Three different notes, but one song. Three different voices, but harmony together. And so, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you today for what we have been challenged with as we look at who you are and this mystery that we struggle to wrap our minds around, the Trinity. And Lord, even as we struggle to understand, we know enough to know that you have called us to community. Lord, I'm so thankful for how people in our church community have joined together and embraced technology to be able to try to connect and, and engage and, and pray together and study God's word together and experience community even when at times we have to be distanced. Lord, I also pray for Christians around the world or, or churches that that have not been able to leverage technology in that way. Lord, I pray that you would bless them with divine creativity. And Lord, I pray right now for Christians, some of whom maybe have become disconnected in this season. And the fact is they're dying on the vine. They so desperately need the church. We need them. 
Lord, thank you how, for how the church represents to the world what you have called humans to be, diverse but united, with different voices but the same song. Different ethnicities and, and backgrounds and styles and, and preferences and, and colors and languages, but united as the church of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray now for churches all across our city and our region. Lord, we pray for churches, yes, all around the world, that we know that no matter what this world throws at us, and the enemy, the devil, might try to stop the mission of the church, but your mission advances forward because, Father, you have planned it for us, the salvation of the world. And Jesus, you have, have executed it by dying on the cross for the salvation of our sins. And Holy Spirit, you empower us. You are here among us. You are in us and around us, working to empower us to make a difference in this world and lead people to Jesus as we advance your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray together. And everybody say, amen.